Chapter Two, Part One of Rainy Week by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Lee. For a single horrid moment, everybody's heart seemed to lurch off into space to land only too audibly in a gaspy thud of dismay. Then, Anne Waltor, with unprecedented presence of mind, jumped up from the table and ran to the mirror over the fireplace. Only the twittering throat muscle reflected in that mirror belied for an instant the sincerity of either her haste or astonishment. "'Broken tooth!' she protested incredulously. "'Why, have I got a broken tooth?' People acknowledged their mental panic so divergently. My husband acknowledged his by ramming his elbow into his coffee cup. Claude Kenilworth lit one cigarette after another. The May girl started to butter a picture postcard that someone had just passed her. Quite starkly before my very eyes, I saw the sober stranger, erstwhile drunken, reach out and slip a silver salt shaker into his pocket. Meeting his glance, my own nerves exploded in a single hoot of mirth. Into the unhappy havoc of the stranger's face, a rather sick but very determinate little smile shot suddenly. Well, I certainly am rattled, he acknowledged. His embarrassment was absolutely perfect. Not a whit too much, not a whit too little, at a moment when the slightest underemphasis or overemphasis of his awkwardness would have stamped him ineradicably as either boor or bounder. More indeed by his chair's volition than by his own, he seemed to jerk aside then and there from any further responsibility for the incident. Turbid as the storm at the window, his eyes racked back to the eyes of his companions. Surely, he besought us, there must be some place, some hotel, somewhere in this town where I can crawl into for a day or two till I can yank myself together again? taking me in this way from the streets, or worse, the way you people have. Along the stricken pallor of his forehead, a glisten of sweat showed faintly. From my eyes to my husband's eyes, and back to mine again, he turned with a sharply impulsive gesture of appeal. How do you people know but what I am, a burglar? He demanded. Even so, I suggested blithely, can't you see that we'd infinitely rather have you visiting here as our friend than boarding at the hotel as our foe? The mirthless smile on the stranger's face twitched ever so faintly at one corner. You really believe, then, he quickened, that there is honor among thieves? All proverbs, intercepted my husband a bit abruptly, are best proved by their antithesis. We do at least know that there is, at times, a considerable streak of dishonor among saints. Eh, what's that? I didn't quite catch it, beamed the bridegroom. But my husband's entire attention seemed to focus rather suddenly on the stranger. So you'd much better stay right on here where you are, he adjured him with some accent of authority. Where all explanations are already given and taken— ourselves quite opportunely short one guest and long one guest room and no i won't listen for a moment to its being called an imposition protested my husband not for a moment 
Only, of course, I must admit, he confided genially, above the flare of a fresh cigarette, that it would be a slight convenience to know your name. My name? flashed the stranger. Why, of course, it's Alan John. You mean John Allen, corrected the May girl very softly. No, insisted the stranger. It's Alan John. Quite logically, he began to rummage through his pockets for the proof. It's written on my bill folder. He frowned. It's in my checkbook. It's written on no end of envelopes. With his face the color of half-dead sedge-grass, he sank back suddenly into his chair and turned his empty hands limply outward as though his wrist bones had been wrung. Gone, he gasped. Stripped. Everything. There you have it, I babbled hysterically. Now, how do you know but what we are burglars, this whole house a den of thieves, the impeccable Mr. George Keats there at your right, no more, no less, than exactly what he looks, an almost perfect replica of a stage raffles. Eh, what's that? Bridled George Keats, dragging you here to this house the way we did. I found her desperately, quite helpless as you were, so, so... Spifflicated, prompted the May girl. The word on her lips was like the flutter of a rose petal. With a little gasp of astonishment, young Kenilworth rose from his place and, dragging his chair in one hand, his plate of fruit in the other, moved round to the May girl's elbow to finish his breakfast. Like a palm trying to patronize a pine tree, his crisp, exotic young ego swept down across her young serenity. Really, I don't quite make you out, he said. I think I shall have to study you. Study me? reflected the May girl. Make a lesson about me, you mean? On a holiday? The vaguely dawning dimple in her smooth cheek faded suddenly out again. The stranger, Alan John, it seemed, was rising from the table. If you'll excuse me, I think I'll go to my room, he explained. I'm still pretty shaky. I'm... But halfway to the stairs, as though drawn by some irresistible impulse, he turned, and fumbling his way back across the dining room, opened the big glass doors direct into the storm. Tripping ever so slightly on the threshold, he lurched forward in a single wavering step. In an instant, the May girl was at his side, her steadying hand held out to his. Recovering his balance almost instantly, he did not, however, release her hand, but still holding tight to it, indescribably puzzled, indescribably helpless, stood shoulder to shoulder with her, staring out into the tempestuous scene. Lashed by the wind, the May girl's mop of hair blew gold, blue-gray, across his rain-drenched eyes. Blurred in a gusty flutter of white skirts, his whole tragic, sagging figure loomed suddenly like some weird, symbolic shadow against the girl's bright beauty. Frankly, the picture startled me. "'Shh!' warned my husband. "'It won't hurt her any. He doesn't even know whether she's young or old.' "'Or a boy. Or a girl,' interposed George Keats a bit dryly. "'Or a nymph or a saint.' grinned young Kenilworth, or... 
or anything at all, persisted my husband, except that she says kindness and nothing else, you notice, except just kindness. No suggestions, you observe, no advice, and at an acid moment in his life of such unprecedented shock and general nervous disorganization, when his only conceivable chance of comeback, perhaps, hangs on the alkaline wag of a strange dog's tail or the tune of a street piano proving balm, not blister. By tomorrow, I think, you won't see him holding hands with the May girl nor with any other woman. Personally, confided my husband a bit abruptly, I rather like the fellow. Even in the worst of his plight last night, there was a certain fundamental sort of poise and dignity about him, as of one who would say, Bad as this is, you chaps must see that I'd stand ready with my life to do the same for you. To do... The same for you? gasped the bride. Very quietly, like an offended young princess, she rose from the table and stood for that single protesting moment with her hand on her bridegroom's shoulder. Her eager academic face was frankly aghast. Her voice distinctly strained. I'm sorry, she said but I quite fail to see how the word dignity could possibly be applied to any man who had so debased himself as to go and get drunk because his wife and child were dead. You talk, said my husband, as though you thought getting drunk was some sort of jocular sport. It isn't. That is, not inevitably, you know. No, I didn't know, murmured the bride coldly. Deplorable as the result proved to be, interposed George Keats' smooth, carefully modulated voice. It's hardly probable, I suppose, that the poor devil started out with the one deliberate purpose of, of debasing himself, as Mrs. Brunswick calls it. No, questioned the bride. It isn't exactly, you mean as though he'd leapt from the church shouting, Yo-ho! and a bottle of rum, observed young Kenilworth with one fatally twisted eyebrow. Shh! admonished everybody. Maybe he simply hadn't eaten for days, suggested my husband. Or slept for nights and nights, frowned George Keats, and just absolutely was obliged to have a bracer, said my husband, to put the bones back onto his knees again so that he could climb up the steps of his train and fumble some sort of way to his seat without seeming too conspicuous. Whatever religion may do, you know, to start your man's soul or stiffen his upper lip, he's got to have bones in his knees if he's going to climb up into railroad trains. And our poor young friend here, it would seem, merely miss... Miscalculated, mused Kenilworth, how many knees he had. Paul wouldn't do it, flared the bride. Do what? demanded young Kenilworth. Hush, protested everybody. Make a beast of himself. If I died, if I died, persisted the bride. Pray excuse me for contradicting either your noun or your preposition apologized my husband, 
but even at its worst i'm quite willing to wager that the only thing in the world poor alan john started out to make was an oblivion for himself an oblivion scoffed the bride yes even for one night persisted my husband even for one short little night before the horror of three hundred sixty-five nights to the year and god knows how many years to the life rang on again some men really like their wives you know some men so no matter how thin-skinned and weak this desire for oblivion seems to you quickened my husband it is at least a paul wouldn't frowned the bride in the sudden accentuation of strain everybody turned as quickly as possible to poor paul to decide as cheerfully as seemed compatible with good taste just what that gorgeously wholesome-looking specimen of young manhood would or would not do probably under suggested circumstances nobody certainly wanted to consider the matter seriously yet nobody with the bride's scared eyes still scorching through his senses would have felt quite justified i think in mere shrugging the issue aside no i don't think paul would rallied my husband with commendable quickness not with those eyes not with that particular shade of crisp controlled hair complexions like his aren't made in one generation of righteous nerves and digestions oh no even in the last ditch the worst thing paul would do would be to stalk round putting brand new gutters on a brand new house bridge building is my job not gutters grinned paul unhappily stalk round building brand new bridges corrected my husband intoxicated with bridges triumphed young kenworth doped with specifications but perhaps alan john doesn't know how to build bridges murmured my husband and perhaps in alan john's family an occasional maiden aunt or uncle has strayed just a with the faintest possible gesture of impatience but still smiling the bridegroom rose from the table and lifted his bride's hand very gently from his shoulder who started this conversation anyway he quizzed i did laughed everybody well i ended said the bridegroom oh thunder protested young kenilworth in the hollow of his hand something that once had been the spongy shapeless centre of a breakfast roll crushed back into sponge again but in the instance of its crushing crude as the modelling was half just half child's play i sensed the unmistakable parody of a woman's fingerprints bruising into the soft crest of a man's shoulder even in the absurdity of its substance the sincerity of the thing was appalling catching my eye alone young kenilworth gave an amused but distinctly worldly wise little laugh women do care so much don't they he shrugged a trifling commotion in the front hall stayed the retort on my lips the commotion was anne waltor coated and hatted and already half-gloved she loomed blackly from the shadows trying very hard to attract my attention 
in my twinge of anxiety about the May girl, I had quite forgotten Anne Walter, and in the somewhat heated discussion of Alan John's responsibilities and irresponsibilities, the May girl also, it would seem, had passed entirely from my mind. I'm very sorry, explained Anne Walter, but with this unfortunate accident to my tooth, I shall have to hurry, of course, right back to town. Even if you had never heard Anne Walter speak, you could have presaged perfectly from her face just what her voice would be like, gravely contralto, curiously sonorous, absolutely without either accent or emphasis, yet carrying in some strange, inexplainable way a rather goose-fleshy sense of stubbornness and finality. One can't exactly, in a Christian land, droned, and Walter go round looking like the sole survivor of a massacre. Across the somewhat sapient mutual consciousness that ever since we had first laid eyes on each other five months ago, and goodness knows how long before that, she had been going round perfectly serenely looking like the sole survivor of a massacre. Anne Walter and I stared just a bit deeply into each other's eyes. The expression in Anne's eyes was an expression of peculiar poignancy. No, of course not, I conceded with some abruptness. But surely, if you can find the right dentist and he's clever at all, you ought to be able to get back here on the 6.30 train tonight. The 6.30 train? Perhaps, murmured Anne Walter. Once again, her eyes hung upon mine. And I knew, and Anne Walter knew, and Anne Walter knew that I knew, that she hadn't the slightest intention in the world of returning to us on any train whatsoever. But for some reason, known only to herself, and perhaps one other, was only too glad to escape from our party, anatomically impossible as that escape sounds, through the loophole of a broken tooth. Already both black gloves were fastened, and her black travelling bag swayed lightly in one slim, determinate hand. "'Your maid has ordered the station bus for me,' she confided, and tells me that by changing cars at the junction and again at Lee's—truly I'm sorry to make any trouble,' she interrupted herself, "'if there had been any possible way of just slipping out without anybody noticing—' "'Without anybody noticing!' I cried. "'Why, Anne!' you dear silly at this my first use of her christian name she flashed back at me a single veiled glance of astonishment and started for the door but before i could reach her side my husband stepped forward and blocked her exit by the seemingly casual accident of plunging both arms rather wildly into the sleeves of his great city-going raincoat why the thing is absurd he protested you can't possibly make train connections, and there isn't even a covered shed at the junction. If this matter is so important, I'll run you up to town myself in the little closed car. Across Anne Walter's imperturbable face, an expression that would have meant an ingrowing scream on any other person's countenance, flared up in a single twitching lip muscle, and was gone again. Behind the smiling banter in my husband's eyes, she also perhaps had noted a determination quite as stubborn as her own. Why, 
if you insist, she acquiesced, but it has always distressed me more than I can say to inconvenience anybody. Inconvenience nothing, beamed my husband. Ordinarily speaking, my husband would not be described, I think, as having a beaming expression. With a chug like the chug of a motorboat, the little closed car came splashing laboriously round the driveway. Its glassy face was streaked with tears. Depressant as black life preservers, its two extra tires gleamed and dripped in their jetty enamel cloth casings. A jangle as of dungeon chains clanked heavily from each fresh revolution of its progress. Everybody came rushing helpfully to assist in the embarkation. My husband's one remark to me flung back in a whisper from the steering wheel, though frankly confidential, concerned Alan John alone. Don't let Alan John want for anything today, he admonished me. Keep his body and mind absolutely glutted with bland things like cocoa and reading aloud, and don't wait supper for us. With her gay jonquil-colored oilskin coat swathing her somber figure, Anne Walter slipped into the seat beside him and slammed the door behind her. Her face was certainly a study. Sixty miles down if it's an inch. How cozy, mused young Kenilworth. Goodbye, shouted everybody. Goodbye waved Anne Woltor and my husband. As for Rollins, he was almost beside himself with pride and triumph. Shuffling joyously from one foot to the other, he crowded to the very edge of the vestibule, and with his small fussy face turned up ecstatically to the rain, fairly exploded into speech the instant the car was out of earshot. She'll look better, gloated Rollins. Who? The car? deprecated young Kenilworth. Then, because everybody laughed out at nothing, it gave me a very good chance suddenly to laugh out at nothing myself, and most certainly I had been needing that chance very badly for at least the last fifteen minutes, because really, when you once stopped to consider the whole thrilling scheme of this rainy week play, and how you and your husband for years and years had constituted yourself a very eager, earnest-minded audience of two, to watch how the Lord Almighty, the one unhampered dramatist of the world, would work out the scenes and colors, the exits and entrances, plots and counterplots of the material at hand it was just a bit astonishing to have your husband jump up from his place in the audience and leap to the stage to be one of the players instead it wasn't at all that the dereliction worried your head or troubled your heart but it left your elbow so lonely who was there left for your elbow to nudge when the morning curtain rose on a flight of seagulls slashing like white knives through a sheet of silver rain, or the night scene set itself in a plushy black fog that fairly crinkled your senses, when the leading lady's eyes narrowed for the first time to the leading man's startled stare, and the song you had introduced so casually at the last moment in the last act, proved to be the reforming point in the villain's nefarious career, 
and the one character you had picked for a comic relief turned out to be the tragedian. Who in the world was left for your elbow to nudge? Swinging back to the breakfast room, I heard the clock strike ten. Only ten? It was going to be a nice little play, all right. Starting off already with several quite unexpected situations. And it wouldn't be the first time by any means that in an emergency I had been obliged to double as prompter and stagehand or water carrier and critic. But how to double as elbow nutter I couldn't quite figure. Let's go for a tramp on the beach, suggested the bridegroom. Always on the first rainy morning immediately after breakfast, some restive businessman suggests a tramp on the beach. Frankly, we have reached a point where we quite depend on it for a cue. Everybody hailed the proposition with delight except Alan John and Rollins. A zephyr would have blown Alan John from his footing, and Rollins had to stay in his room to catalogue shelves. Rollins was paid to stay in his room and catalogue shelves. Of the five adventurers who essayed to sally forth, only one failed to clamour for oilskins. You couldn't really blame the bride for her lack of clamouring. The bride's trousseau was wonderful as all trousseau are bound perforce to be that are made up of equal parts of taste, money, fashion, and passion. No one who had saved up such a costume as the bride had for the first rainy day together could reasonably be expected to doff it for yellow oilskins of some priceless foreign composition, half cloth, half mist, indescribably shimmering, almost indecently feminine, with the Frenchiest sort of a little hat gaily concocted of marsh grass and white rubber pond lilies, it gave her lovely, somewhat classic type, all the sudden audacious effect, somehow, of a waterproofed valentine. Young Kenilworth sensed the inherent contrast at once. Beside you, he protested, we look like yellow telegrams. Your husband there is some broker's stock quotation, sent collect. Mr. Keats is a rather heavily worded summons to address the alumni of something or other college. I am a lunch invitation to Miss Dancy Prancy of the Sillies. And you, of course, Miss Davies, he quickened delightedly, are a night letter, because you are so long, and inconsequent, all about rabbits and puppies, and kitty things like checked gingham pinafores. Laughing, teasing, arguing, jeering each other's oilskins, praising the bride's splendor, they swept, a young hurricane of themselves, out into the bigger hurricane of sea and sky, and still five abreast, still jostling, still teasing, still arguing, passed from sight around the storm-swept curve of the beach, while I stood behind to read aloud to Alan John. Not that Alan John listened at all, but merely because every time I stopped reading he struggled up from the lovely soggy depths of his big leather chair and began to worry. We read two garden catalogues and a chapter on insect pests. We read a bit of Walter Potter and five exceedingly scurrilous poems from a volume of free verse. It seemed to be the Latin names in the garden catalogues that soothed him most, and when we weren't reading... We drank malted milk. Alan John, it seemed, didn't care for cocoa. But even if I hadn't had Alan John on my mind, I shouldn't have gone walking on the beach. 
we have always indeed made it a point not to walk on the beach with our guests on the first rainy, restive morning of their arrival. In a geographical environment where every slushy step of sand, every crisp rug of pebbles, every wind-tortured cedar root, every salt-gnawed crag is as familiar to us as the palms of our own hands, it is almost beyond human nature not to try and steer one's visitors to the preferable places, while the whole point of this introductory expedition demands that the visitors shall steer themselves. In the inevitable mood of uneasiness and dismay that overwhelms most house-party guests when first thrust into each other's unfamiliar faces, the initial gravitations that ensue are rather more than usually significant. To be perfectly explicit, for instance, people who start off five-abreast on that first rainy walk never come home five-abreast. In the immediate case at hand, nobody came home at all, until long after Alan John and I had finished our luncheon, and in the matter of that coming, George Keats had gravitated to leadership with the bride and bridegroom. Very palpably, with the bridegroom's assistance, he seemed to be coaxing and urging the bride's frankly jaded footsteps, while young Kenilworth and the maid girl brought up the rear, staggering and lurching excitedly under the weight of a large and somewhat mysteriously colored wooden box. The bridegroom and George Keats and young Kenilworth and the maid girl were as neat as yellow paint. But the poor bride was ruined. Tattered and torn, her diaphanous glory had turned to real mist before the onslaught of wind and rain. Her hat was swamped, her face streaked with inharmonious colors. She was drenched to the skin. Her bridegroom was distracted with anxiety and astonishment everybody was very much excited. Lured by some will-o'-the-wisp that lurks in waves and beaches, they had lost their way, it seems, between one dune and another, staggered up sand-hills, fallen down sand-hills, sheltered themselves at last during the worst gust of all, in a sort of a cave in a sort of a cliff, and sustained life very comfortably, thank you, on some cakes of sweet chocolate which George Keats had discovered most opportunely in his big oilskin pockets. But most exciting of all, they had found a wreck. Yes, a real wreck, a perfectly lovely, beautiful, and quite sufficiently gruesome real wreck, the May girl reported. End of chapter 2, part 1